Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Glad you're on board on this Friday, the 27th of October. Coming up in just a few minutes, the AP's Tom Beaumont on why support for Israel has become a top issue for Iowa evangelicals. Of course, in the run-up to the Iowa caucuses, um, now uh, less than three months away. We'll also meet an award-winning Egyptian writer, who is uh, now in residence in the state, and groove into the weekend with C.C. Mitchell. That's all still to come. But first, Iowa, we know, is one of the top producers of wind power in the U.S. However, plans for a new wind farm in the Iowa Great Lakes region in northwest Iowa hit a major roadblock. Uh, Earlier this week, Sheila Brummer uh, joins us now, IPR's Western Iowa reporter, Hi, Sheila. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Happy Friday. Yeah, Sheila, some happy, some not so happy uh, at the end of this week. The Dickinson County Board of Adjustment turned down a permit for a new wind farm. Uh, Tell us first about what was proposed, the background there. Well, this proposal, it's been years in the making, and that was back in 2008. Local landowners got together and said, hey, we want a wind farm in our region, well, Invenergy, they're a company out of Chicago. They got involved in 2019, and they started getting signed contracts with property owners who wanted to take part. Well, in April, they go before the County Board of Supervisors, and they wanted a permit eventually for 101 turbines. But at that time, six months ago, other property owners say it was the first time they ever heard about the project, and they were not happy at all, Ben. Mm-hmm. And so the Dickinson County Board of Adjustment comes into the picture when? And we have, what, three nights uh, where the board heard this week from people on both sides of the issue. Walk us up to the present. Well, they did this week three nights of hearings, and they heard 15 hours of people talking for the project, people who hated the project. They heard from company officials, many officials, scientists for Invenergy. And they heard all this testimony. People, you know, are really emotional about this. Um, People very passionate for and against. Also, people sent in letters, and they read those letters. I think they had like four hours of letters um, that the zoning commissioner read to the Board of Adjustment. And A lot of people who supported the plan, they said, you know, it's smart economically. A big boost for local schools with tax money. Um, Local communities could benefit. There would be jobs. And they also said they were concerned about the environment. They want clean energy. They believe wind energy is the way to go to stop climate change. The other side also stressed the environment, too. For different reasons. They were worried about bird migration, killing eagles, other wildlife problems. They didn't want the countryside to be filled with all these turbines um, because, you know, the Great Lakes area, it's full of tourism. They didn't want that to be impacted. Some said they were worried about their health, the loud noise, flicker from turbines. And some say that the turbines would be too close to their homes. They wanted extended setbacks because the turbines for this project 
they were taller, about 600 feet tall. And at the time, the permit was for 101 turbines. That project was reduced to about 80 turbines for the final proposal. Well, mm-hmm. after listening for about 15 hours, the board voted and they denied the permit. And emotions were really high. Um, people, including in Invenergy, they were pretty shocked, actually. And the company didn't want to comment immediately after the hearing in Spirit Lake that took place. But one person who did speak to us who wanted the project was Austin Fairchild. He is on the city council of Terrell, and that's in the region. And he also works in the wind energy field as a technician. Here's what he had to say. I was a little surprised that they voted against the project. The city of Terrell is arguably the most in need of these funds from this project in all of Dickinson County. As I stated in my opinion, our poverty rate is over 20%. This project would have came with economic development money and more jobs to the area that would have been needed. I think we missed an opportunity here. I hope we appeal and win. Um, But again, I, I really wanted this to succeed so future winter technicians could maybe set up in Dickinson County, live, work, and play. So Austin Fairchild there on the City Council of Terrell, uh, tell us a little bit about the the movement. I understand a, a real grassroots movement that succeeded here in, in defeating this wind farm. Yeah, that's what's really interesting. You know, I told you earlier about how some homeowners said they didn't hear about this project until six months ago. Well, they got together, they formed a group, it was called the Dickinson County Concerned Citizens, or DC3. They put up signs, they got the word out to their neighbors about the proposed project. Chris Van Cleet was one of those landowners who's lived in the area her whole life. Her son also lives nearby, and he even owns a crop dusting business and said the turbines would essentially ground his company, and they did not want the turbines to be there. Before the vote, Invenergy actually announced that they were going to halt the two turbines that were going to be near the the runway for the crop dusting business. And they also, this is what's really interesting, they said that they would extend setbacks for turbines from 1,200 to 1,600 feet from a residence. That was a big concern. The setbacks were done years ago when the turbines were a little bit shorter. And again, these turbines were going to be 600 feet tall. Well, Chris Van Cleet, she was in tears when the Board of Adjustment made their decision with a three-to-one vote. I'm so grateful for, for them. I can't imagine the pressure that they had on them to make the right decision. I know there are people that are disappointed in that, and I can appreciate those landowners who wanted that money, and I pray that that, will, that won't be an issue with their farming operations because I want everyone to be successful. And I pray that our neighborhood would heal. I pray that our community would heal after this, that people would would forgive and remember that we're still neighbors and we're still people. Okay, Chris Van Cleet there um, with some emotional remarks. And also, uh, by what she said, it sounds like it was a a knockdown, drag-out sort of debate with uh, some high passions and and, uh, people really feeling either very good or very bad in the community. Yeah, and like you, you heard what she said, she hopes that people can come together There are actually two other proposals being talked about for Dickinson County and for the area. And, and, you know, and and Chris says that she's going to still fight. Um, DC3 is going to still work to keep the turbines out of the area because she's really passionate about it. And um, again, grassroots effort. And it was kind of like the the big giant company against just um, local everyday people. So what now? Is this the final decision for Dickinson County? 
Well, it is for for county officials, according to what they they told me today. Um, They said now it'll be up to the court system. Um, They can file an appeal to district court and then go from there. And a lawyer from Invenergy in the past has said the company has already invested millions of dollars. They've done environmental studies. They've worked with landowners. They've spent a lot of money. The experts they brought in, they had scientists who talked about sound, the environment, um, and more. So they did spend a lot of money to start this project. This brings to mind, Sheila, what does this mean for the development of wind energy in our state? As I uh, mentioned at the outset, uh, we are you know, one of the top three or four states in terms of uh, wind power production. Well, actually, the experts that Invenergy brought in said Iowa's now number two, actually. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, we're seeing more and more restrictions in the state of Iowa. Um, Woodbury County, where I'm based, extended their setback to 2,500 feet. You can't put a turbine within two miles of a city or town. Other counties are doing it. Central Iowa, Madison County, that forced Mid-American Energy to halt a plan that they had for a wind farm. Sioux County, just north of us, they actually issued another one-year moratorium to ban any turbines in their county. So if you do not have counties willing to have open arms to business, are they going to come? Probably not. Okay, Sheila, thank you so much for the coverage here on Dickinson County Board of Adjustment in Northwest Iowa, turning down a permit for a new wind farm uh, to have uh, featured 79 turbines in this wind farm. Sheila Brummer, thank you so much, uh, IPR's Western Iowa reporter, for covering this and for this conversation. Yeah, it's always nice to talk to you. Well, after I spoke with Sheila yesterday, the company Invenergy released uh, a statement. It reads, This recent decision does not reflect the overwhelming support for the community-founded Red Rock Wind Energy Center, including more than 240 landowners who are partnering with us to bring substantial economic investment and family-sustaining jobs to Northwest Iowa. End quote from Invenergy. Well, on to another quick note having to do with developments in the state connected to the challenge of climate change. Last week, Summit Carbon Solutions announced it's pushing back its timeline to begin operating that $5.5 billion carbon capture pipeline across Iowa and four other states. The company cited regulatory hurdles, plus environmentalist and landowner opposition. Grant Gerlach joins me now, IPR reporter. Hi, Grant. Hey, Ben. You've been covering this story. What does this latest development mean for the future of carbon capture pipelines in Iowa and other Midwest states? Well, it just sort of demonstrates how some of these regulatory hurdles are, uh, they, they are becoming obstacles to these companies trying to uh, establish these carbon pipelines. So the situation with Navigator, they were rejected in South Dakota, and that eventually spun out with the company withdrawing its petitions in Illinois and Iowa. Summit Carbon Solutions, which wants to build its pipeline through Iowa up through South Dakota into North Dakota, they've run into some of the same issues um, in other states. Uh, It was rejected in South Dakota and North Dakota for many of the same reasons that Navigator ran into obstacles. But Summit says they're sticking with it. They are not backing down. They're continuing with their their regulatory process, um, particularly in in North Dakota and South Dakota, and going back to those regulatory boards to try to get approval for that project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though Navigator is being canceled, 
They're basically saying, we're keeping going, and maybe we'll add some more ethanol plants to the project. Right. And Grant, uh, quickly, uh, what's next? Well, this summit pipeline will go back to uh, its hearing in Iowa. That was put on hold for after like seven consecutive weeks of testimony. They'll be going back to hear from more landowners and other witnesses uh, starting November 6th. Once that wraps up, then the Iowa Utilities Board has to come to its own decision about what to do. Mm-hmm. Grant Gerlock, IPR reporter. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, the AP's Tom Beaumont on why support for Israel has become a top issue for Iowa evangelicals. It's your Friday News Buzz, back in just a minute. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Now on to the city of Osceola, uh, south of Des Moines, about halfway to the Missouri border. After three years of drought, Osceola's water source, West Lake, has less than a year's worth of water remaining. Now, the city of about 5,000 residents is asking the state to allow it to augment its drinking water supply with treated wastewater. If this request is approved, that would make Osceola the first city in Iowa to take that step. Joining me now, Ty Wheeler. He is Osceola's city administrator. Welcome to the program, Ty. Thank you for having me. Before we get to your request of state regulators, tell us about your city's water source, West Lake. So West Lake is a uh, approximately 315-acre lake. It's been the city's sole water source for about a century now. It's been raised a few times. The watershed is such where we can't make it any bigger. We've maximized its potential. And it's been known for a couple decades now that we were on the edge in terms of its ability to continue to keep up with demand. And so the community's been working on a new water reservoir project for you know the last 15 years or so, but we just haven't been able to uh, Get very, we've got the planning done on it. We haven't been able to advance it into final design and construction for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately, we reached that point where all the data suggested that, yeah, we were going to start to uh, stress it when dry weather times hit. And that's where we're at right now. Yeah. So, okay. So increasing demand for the, your water supply that has served uh, the Osceola area for um, 100 years, combined with this drought. Uh, describe what, uh, what the lake looks like now compared to what it did a few years ago before the drought. Well, uh, you know, the most noticeable feature of the lake is, is the shorelines that are now exposed. And you go to the marina, the boat ramps are all showing now we're pretty much to the end of the uh, hard surface uh, areas. We're talking about, you know, pulling the docks out because of concern about uh, structural integrity. Um, The spillway 
near the dam. It's now dried up. The water's receded back uh, several yards uh, from the from the spillway area. But I think probably the most dramatic appearance of the lake is you go to the west end, and it's pretty much all dried up. It looks like a farm field from the mm. road because the vegetation has grown up now so high that you wouldn't even think that there should be water standing there. And there should be, but it's all dried up. And I understand the Lakeside Hotel Casino, it's a floating casino, is in danger of no longer being floating. <laughs> yeah, we're still trying to assess what the impacts are going to be, but obviously that uh, facility sits in one of the fingers. And so we're still looking at, okay, well, what happens, you know, when the water ultimately, or when there's not enough water to actually float that facility, what do we need to do? And right now we're working with some engineers and we've, and we're going to take some topography or do some topography mapping and, and hopefully get a better handle on just exactly what we need to do to mitigate any risk to the to the facility. Okay, back to the drinking water issue um, and what you are asking as a city of state regulators. You held a town hall meeting last night to discuss it. Tell us about the request and, and what happened last night. Who showed up? We had a great turnout last night, a lot of public, um, and it was a very uh, productive and overall positive dialogue. They had There were lots of great questions. I would say, by and large, the questions that the public had were more about the existing water supply and some of the conservation measures that the Osceola Water Utility Board of Trustees were putting in place and, and sort of the what's going to happen in the next 200 days if we don't see any relief from Mother Nature. We did introduce the uh, recirculation concept and, you know, I think we just, I just haven't had much of any sort of concern expressed by it. I, I think people are coming around or quickly coming around to the idea that we've had to build this new wastewater treatment plant. Um, we're all paying for it on our utility bill. And it's not, you know, the old lagoon systems of, of decades past. This is a, a very uh, robust and advanced treatment process that's producing a high quality effluent that you know, and it's kind of a paradigm shift. It's not a burden to get rid of. It's should we be treating it as a resource and and not sending it down White Breast Creek, never to be seen again. Yeah. You call it the recirculation process? Correct. So the idea is uh, we, and it's kind of more of a, a, a wastewater project still because we're treating it as, or we're, or the request is, is creating a new wastewater outfall. So rather than releasing the treated effluent into our into our receiving stream, which is Whitebreast Creek, uh, we would capture it, recirculate it after the treatment process, and it would go into a, about a four and a half mile pipeline, and then be uh, uh, discharged into the West Lake watershed. Mm -hmm. So so in this town hall meeting or otherwise, concerns from any community members about, I'll just call it the U factor, uh, using this treated wastewater as part of your municipal drinking water supply? Well, the data suggests that the, uh, the wastewater, or our treated effluent, if you will, that we're going to be recirculating is better than or at the very least equal to the quality of raw water in West Lake. Mm-hmm. And again, it's kind of this paradigm shift about thinking about that treated wastewater in a different way because 
of the robust standards now that we are we are subject to. Yeah, and while Osceola would be the first city to do this in Iowa, other cities, notably in the western part of the U.S., where there's been so much uh, lack of water, uh, they view re- reused wastewater discharge to to address their their scarcity as well. I understand. So to to, to wind up here, Ty, um, have you heard from the state uh, initially? Is there a decision? When will the decision? Uh, be and I assume you're you're, you're expecting the the go ahead on this. Yeah, so we we've had a kickoff meeting uh, with a wide variety of of representatives from the DNR because you know there's wastewater folks involved, there's water supply folks involved, and because this is a new project, I think everybody or a new concept to Iowa. I think everybody's really trying to kind of get their bearings, if you will. We anticipate we'll have some type of a some direction from the state uh, by late November. Nobody, there's not been any concern expressed about, no, this isn't going to work right off the bat, but we're, you know, they're still very much in the process of reviewing the concept. We have had other state agencies, though, express that, wow, this is a really innovative way to try to resolve some of these uh, water, raw water concerns, and they're kind of excited to see this project move forward. Okay, Ty Wheeler, Osceola City Administrator. Osceola, if this is approved by the state, would be the first city in Iowa to use recycled, treated wastewater as part of its municipal drinking water supply. Ty, thank you so much. Pleasure. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, Iowa's leadoff Republican presidential caucus is uh, now less than three months away, I think 80 days away, something like that. And we know evangelical Christians in the state are a huge influence in that contest. The AP's Tom Beaumont has looked into why support for Israel has become a top issue for Iowa evangelicals. Uh, He joins me now. Hi again, Tom. Ben, it's great to be here. Great to have you with us. 20 days since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, and Israel has responded forcefully. Uh, We know evangelicals in this country have a special affinity for Israel. What did you set out to do in this piece? It dawned on me that I had known for, you know, covering uh, Iowa Republicans as long as I have, that Israel is often a a centerpiece, a top value for uh, Christian conservatives. They have a uh, historical affinity. It all goes back to the Bible for many of the social conservatives and evangelical conservatives uh, in the promise that God made in the Old Testament to Abraham, that his nation, you know, his family would prosper as a nation, you know, and so there's been this long-time affinity, but typically abortion has been the key issue when it comes to uh, the, the political motivation of this group. Sometimes it's homeschooling. Another issue that, that rises to the top is uh, religious freedom and uh, the marriage issue, you know, opposition to same-sex marriage. But in light of the Hamas attack on October 7th, Israel just vaulted to the top. And one of the things that I found interesting is that because this issue always sort of is at the top of the list, but lurking behind some of these other priorities, it gave an opportunity to these pastors to remind their parishioners, who many of whom are, are uh, 
you know, devout conservatives and caucus-going conservatives, it gave these pastors an opportunity to rem- remind them of why Israel has this place in the heart of Christianity. And so it gave them an opportunity to suggest that these uh, their parishioners look closely at the records and the statements of the people that are running for president, and it kind of opened up the discussion in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get to some of the, the, the quotes you've gathered here. Um, who did you speak with? You spoke with Iowa evangelicals, pastors. Uh, what stood out to you in particular about what they had to say? One of the things that jumped right out uh, is the perception of former President Trump. Former President Trump has had a way of, as we know, uh, saying things that are at times impolitic, but has a record that sort of proves up his his priorities. And in the case of Israel, uh, right after the attack, he criticized Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, um, said that he was not on board with the U.S. during a 2020 strike on an uh, Iranian general, Soleimani, said that uh, Israel did not do their part. And for people who, you know, not just evangelical Christians, but also the very strong pro-Israel uh, lobby within the Republican Party, they, they, they criticized former President Trump's um, comments on that because it's, their, their point was you don't criticize a wartime leader, especially an ally, the strongest ally the United States has in the Middle East. And so there was an immediate criticism of, of what former President Trump said. And then they all come back to, but look at former President Trump's record. Mm-hmm. He moved, as he said he would, the embassy from Tel Aviv, the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, fulfilling that uh, Christian conservative priority. He recognized the Golan Heights. He had success with the Abraham Accords. So again, it's this case kind of like it is with abortion, where after the 2022 election, former President Trump was critical of Republicans who had very strong and um, you know more rigid positions on abortion as having cost uh, Republicans some House seats. And while people who support the uh, restriction of abortion rights were critical of that, they again say, but look, mm-hmm. he appointed justices to the Supreme Court who helped overturn Roe versus Wade. So it's, it, it always gets to this question of his rhetoric versus his record. But among these uh, Christian conservatives, especially pastors in Iowa, uh, they look at criticizing the leader of Israel during wartime as you know a bad move, whereas former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, uh, you know, came out very strong with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. So did Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and and others. Yeah. So so we're talking about you, you waded into how this is affecting the other candidates for the GOP nomination and those caucuses here in Iowa coming up. Uh, we have this interesting when we talk about religion, <laughs> the, the interesting candidacy of Vivek Ramaswamy, the biotech entrepreneur who is a Hindu, but often talks about his affinity for Judeo-Christian beliefs. If there was one sort of key takeaway, it is that this development is not good for him. Not only does his faith cause some evangelical Christians pause, but 
he has also called for rethinking and, and limiting U.S. support for Israel. I mean, and now he is trying to say uh, and, and is saying that if Israel ever comes to that decision where they request that the United States step back, he's trying to put that in a, in a light more favorable. But he is tattooed with his previous statements that the U.S. ought to rethink its commitment its financial uh, contributions, both in you know military and social spending, for Israel, which just hang around his head like a noose at this point. Mm-hmm. In your piece, Tom, I thought it was important the nuance you brought out that Iowa's evangelical voters are not monolithic, and, and also there is even some, I guess, differing on the massive number of refugees from Gaza. That's true, from what I found, and it's caused a bit of a back and forth between. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has said that the United States has the capacity to differentiate refugees who are, you know, seeking asylum and those who support terrorism. DeSantis took that comment and sort of twisted it into suggesting that Haley would allow Palestinian refugees from the Gaza into the United States. That's not true. She has said that neighboring countries should accept them. But her point was that the United States has the capacity to to make these distinctions and in that way has appealed to some evangelical Christians who see the plight of the innocent people in, in the Gaza it's, you know, there's, there's no question that Hamas is hiding within them and is putting those civilians at risk, you know, and, and hundreds, if not thousands, are, are likely to die in this conflict because they cannot get out. And it, it's such a densely populated area. And Christians, you know, evangelical Christians in Iowa and Christians in general and, and thoughtful people know that people are going to die who are not combatants in this. Tom, before we go, and very quickly, the former president, Trump, and other candidates linking Hamas to our southern border crisis. How do they make that link? It's interesting because these uh, Christian conservative values have bled into domestic issues. There is this link that people are noticing, and that has developed, where these Christian conservative values are taking on the domestic priorities of conservatives. And there are those who are afraid that an open border at the at the U.S.-Mexico border is allowing and would allow Middle Eastern pro-Hamas refugees to come over the border. And so that's one of the reasons why people like DeSantis are very uh, adamant about not allowing refugees from Gaza to come into the United States. Mm -hmm. But to date, to be clear, no evidence of Hamas fighters coming over our southern border. There are those candidates who say we really don't know. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Tom, I always enjoy your work and these conversations we have with you on NewsBuzz. Tom Beaumont of the Associated Press. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, uh, we'll meet an award-winning Egyptian writer now in residence in the state. Your NewsBuzz continues after a short break. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in a moment. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, toward the end of the hour, we groove into the weekend, of course, uh, this hour with C.C. Mitchell of IPR Studio One. But first, let's continue our series of conversations with established writers from around the world. Since 1967, over 1,600 writers from more than 150 nations have taken part in the International Writing Program's Fall Residency at the University of Iowa. This year, 34 writers from 30 different countries are finishing up their residency here in Iowa, and we've been getting to know a few of them here on River to River. Today, we welcome Mansoura Izzadin. Uh, Mansoura is an Egyptian writer and novelist, in fact, uh, award-winning writer and widely translated author of 10 books. Her writing has appeared, among other places, in the New York Times. She's also books editor at the most popular cultural weekly in Egypt. Mansoura, welcome to our studio. Uh, so glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh-oh. I'm so happy to be with you. I wanted to have you read us a translation of some of your work in just a moment. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to our audience and your writing. Uh, I am Mansour Azitin, a writer from Egypt. I was born in 1976 in a tiny village by the Nile in the Nile Delta, north of Egypt. Uh, And then I moved to Cairo to study and to begin my career as a writer when I was just 18 years old. And in Cairo, I began to explore the city and the culture and be close to some literary circles. And I began my career as a writer in Cairo alone, mm-hmm. on my own. Now I have 10 published books, uh, six novels, uh, three collections of short stories, and one book of travel writing about China. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, what interests you about fiction? You've chosen fiction as the, the main venue for your talent here. Why fiction? Um, I love imagination, you know. Um, since I was a kid, I used to listen to a huge amount of uh, ghost tales, ghost stories oh. in the Nile Delta by my grandparents and my mom and my uncles. And these stories were not just stories. They were like a part of the daily life in the Nile Delta back then. You, you hear a lot, of, a lot of stories about the fairies that inhabit the River Nile, and you, you feel that they are not, not fiction, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I was like a lonely kid. Yeah. I have uh, other uh, siblings, uh, of course, but I was lonely and I used to love reading and listening to these stories. They ignited my imagination, expanded my horizon and made me feel that I live in a huge, vast world. Not, that, not only that limited and small, isolated village. Uh, so I, uh, I was like, I wanted to invent Yes. Stories that are like this, that could ignite the imagination of others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mansoura, would you uh, treat us to a, a little bit of your writing, uh, a translation of, of something <clears throat> that you wrote? What will we hear here? Um, actually, it's not a translation. Uh, it's a poem I wrote in English while I'm here. Okay, okay. Um, this is my first time to write poetry as an adult. Uh, so let's try. <laughs> okay. Uh, does it have a title? Uh, a home painted with the color of loss. Hmm. Homecoming, you say, 
I saw the world written in a wall. It gave me chills. I walked away as if my steps will gift me with an answer. Homecoming? What does that even mean? I have never come home. I am always bidding farewell to it, as if this is what home means, a place that exists only for us to live. I remember a home I have never seen. Its sounds are engraved on my memory. Its colors are imprinted on my eyes. Its lights illuminate the darkest lanes in my soul. I used to describe its mysterious closed room, the river's room, as they called it. I once recited the story of my unrequited love to the Sufi songs emerging from it. Shut up, my mom said. That house was demolished long before you were born. No, it is the only home I ever had, I cried. Ever since, I knew that my home is a fleeting memory, a fading color, a candle's light flickering in the wind. This is what happens when your first home is a lost one. One you have never stepped into. You become distant to lose the sense of home. Every time you leave your place, it dissolves, ceases to exist. Now I dream of a home that doesn't evaporate, a home that defies loss, forgetting, and sorrow. I dream to really inhabit, inhabit my body, to use it as a shield and weapon. In my darkest nights, I envision it shivering in the cold. I close my eyes, embrace myself and imagine a home painted with the color floss. Mm. Mansoura Izzedin reading a poem that you wrote here in Iowa during your residency at the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. It's, it's not hard to guess why perhaps being in this foreign country inspired you to write poetry of your home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, uh, it's not uh, only about being here because I am used to traveling. Yes, I, I travel a lot, but I uh, I left my home uh, when I was uh, in the I mean in the village when I was eighteen years old. So I am I feel alienated most of the time, even in Cairo, in Egypt. You feel alienated most of the time, yeah, and even I, in your home. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I uh, I feel like I lost the sense of home. Since ah. I stepped out of so my... So is that that you belong to every part of the world or you, yeah, you have no place yeah, you belong? A mix of both. Mm. I feel that I am I belong to every, uh, to all the world. I, I feel at home in some cities like Prague, Berlin, Shanghai and other cities. But at the same time, I feel that I have no real home because I feel and I enjoy it. If you remember uh, Derek Walcott once say, I have no nation but imagination. Mm. I, I believe in writing. I believe in imagination. Uh, mm-hmm. I, am, I am happy to be a writer. So you've been here for a couple of months, over two months here at, mm. uh, in Iowa, but also traveling to other parts of the, the U.S. as part of this yeah. program here. What are your takeaways from uh, being in Iowa, perhaps your first time in Iowa? Yeah. I like the city. It's for me. Like, Iowa City, yes, where yeah, you've been yeah. most of the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I feel like a bit at home before uh, I am a farm girl. You are a farm girl. Yeah, I uh, I came, as I told you, from the countryside. And when I was a kid, I used to be surrounded by a lot of 
cornfields. So I came here to Iowa <laughs> and I saw cornfields everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Made you feel at home. Yeah. Mansura, while you've been here, and I feel I have to ask this because, yeah. of course, um, uh, the world is now focused on the Middle East because of the Israel-Hamas war, and uh, you as a native of Egypt, um, of course, Egypt mm-hmm. um, uh, bordering on uh, Gaza, and now with the many refugees there, it must be very strange for you uh, to see this war, this conflict break out while you are here in Iowa, especially. Yeah, it is heartbreaking for me, very painful. And I used to cry a lot until now. I cry a lot in my room uh, every time I follow the news and what is happening and the killing of all these uh, children and uh, bombarding of uh, houses and hospitals. Uh, but it's not a war. Gaza is an occupied land, and we should concentrate on the fact of the occupation when we talk about what is happening now, because it's it's not only one incident. We should put it in a whole context since the beginning of all this conflict, all this uh, uh, the beginning of this conflict. So you find here in the United States a, a much different media environment and with those you've talked to, much less sympathy for the Palestinian people. I, um, I followed uh, a lot of demonstrations here by uh, the Jewish community in New York and uh, other, uh, other cities, and uh, I really respected uh, respect what they are doing. But the media itself is not, uh, fair enough in my in my opinion they don't uh, sympathize uh, what is happening in uh, Gaza and the, they are like normalizing the violence mm. and they always say like doubting uh, the suffering of the Palestinians mm-hmm. and they don't I, I haven't read a lot of uh, articles in the mainstream uh, media Again, it's the language of dehumanizing the Palestinians. And this is very dangerous for, for all of us, not just for the Palestinians. Because when we honor the victims and try to help them and try to end the suffering of all civilians, we are honoring ourselves. We, we do this for ourselves uh, in order not to repeat it again. When they said never again, I think they didn't. This way, I can guess that they didn't mean non-white people. They, as if they never again, only for white people. I, I, I began to doubt a lot of things. Let Let's end by turning back to your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what are your projects now? Where do you hope you to take your writing from here? Uh, here I am. I began writing and uh, uh, text um, inspired by Iowa, by the nature here. A novel or what? Or? In, in, I don't think it will be a novel. It, it's a mix, fiction and nonfiction. Mm. Because the, there are uh, some. I wrote a lot about uh, uh, Iowa nature, trees and fields, and I am mixing it with some tales from the countryside in Egypt, the, uh, the Nile Delta. So till now, I feel it's a bit weird even for me <laughs> while writing it. And I hope that something good will come out of it. Right. And it's interesting that uh, I'm so intrigued by your comments about 
uh, ghost stories being an early inspiration along yeah. the Nile and fairies, very much in tune with our time now. Of course, we celebrate Halloween mm. uh, next week. Do you celebrate Halloween in, in any way in Egypt? No, but the whole region now lives uh, like uh, a Halloween, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> back to our news theme. Yes, yeah. uh, the horror of of, yeah, yeah, of what is happening uh, of yeah. what is happening in the Middle East. Mm. All right, uh, Mansoura Izadin. Thank you so much for coming into our studio. Mm. Uh, Mansoura is an Egyptian writer and novelist, and uh, has uh, well just completed, nearly completed, a residency at the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. We wish you well. And let's just wish for peace in the world. Thank you. Let's pray for it. <laughs> <laughs>